Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca St. James. My guest today is Dr. David McCarty. Dr. McCarty is a board-certified specialist in sleep medicine and a pioneer in the practice of patient-centered care for those who suffer from sleep disorders. An award-winning educator, he is passionate about empowering individuals with knowledge that restores confidence and personal agency as each patient navigates the landscape of disease and wellness within an increasingly fragmented healthcare system. He is also the co-creator of Empowered Sleep Apnea, an innovative cross-platform educational project combining storytelling, cartooning, scientific rigor, and quite a bit of fun, all in the name of helping individuals navigate the fascinating but complex disorder known as sleep apnea. Launched in 2023, the project comprises a website, a book, a blog, and a podcast. The Children's Airway First Foundation is proud to partner with Dr. McCarty and Empowered Sleep Apnea in an effort to help create more information, education, and understanding around the subject of airway and sleep apnea. You can find out more about Dr. McCarty at empoweredsleepapnea.com. And now... Let's dig into the first part of our two-part series with Dr. Dave McCarty. All right. Good morning and welcome to the podcast, Dave. Good morning. Thank you for uh, for letting me come on here. It's it's uh, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, and before we get started, I'm just going to let people know, because um, I think it happens sometimes, I'm kind of gushy on this particular podcast because I started reading the book about a week and a half ago, maybe about a week ago. And I I, I cannot recommend it enough. And even with all the books that I've read so far, it's, it's very different. You take a very different approach, which I think is part of its uniqueness, chock full of so much information. And as we were talking about a little bit before, it's caused me to look at my airway journey differently and my daughters differently. So um, it, 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 it really is a, a very Yay. unique experience. So, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that makes me so happy. That was totally the intent. Good. Was, you know, Good. I, I love it when that, when I, you know, when the lights come on and, and suddenly these connections are made and you're like, Oh, I'm thinking about it in this new way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm able to yeah. deconstruct this in a way that makes sense and, and mm-hmm. allowing people to see that complexity in a way that's not scary. That's what this mm-hmm. whole project is about. Yeah. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, just to kind of show people a little show on camera. Well, see, I mean, it's, it's not scary. Even the book is inviting and I will warn somebody before they get their ticket and get on the boat and start through this journey is not a fast read. Don't expect that. It's It's not supposed to be points. You take points along the way and there's, there's reflection and there's activities. So it it is a journey. Yes. It's meant to be an adventure, you know, um, the the whole uh, style of this project came about due to my partnership with uh, with my co-author, Dr. Ellen Stothard. Mm-hmm. We started this project as an audio project because uh, mm-hmm. the backstory is that I, I had developed a curriculum with my patients, which I taught to all my patients. I sort of refer to it as the empowerment curriculum. And essentially, it's what amounts to part one of the book. The first section of the book is all the stuff I would teach people on day one. And individually, you know, I would I would vary the curriculum a little bit person by person, depending on what they needed. But it would usually take about an hour 
you know, and that's a lot of instruction. But if we got that curriculum across and the patient got their feet on the ground and felt like, you know, I can, I, I got this, I can navigate this complex terrain because I understand the jargon. It's not scary. Then magic happens. You know, that's when the magic happens because the patient is fully engaged and, and they understand what's, what the stakes are and they understand what their decisions mean. Um, No one in my clinic ever felt coerced into a treatment. That's just not the way it worked. It's, you know, here's what we are looking at. Here are the possible options. And there's actually lots of different things that one can try for a a problem like sleep apnea. And then, you know, here's where you are. And let's talk about where you are and why you might need treatment. So boiling that down and and deconstructing that complexity in a way that doesn't scare people. That's what the project is about. But I realized that when I first started to try to put this into a textbook, the magic was lost somehow. Because it wasn't mm-hmm. engaging. Like a textbook is kind of scary. You know, it's got charts mm-hmm. and it's got tables and it's got jargon that you have to learn and memorize. And so instantly. And it's coming at you. Yeah. All one way. So mm-hmm. so the, the recoil response to that education is just human nature. So, every, you know, I spent about six months trying to write this textbook and I, I got frustrated. And every time I read it back to myself, it was just terrible. I tried putting humor in. And, you know, I, I likened it to, you know, standing with a knife while smiling, you know, it was still scary <laughs> right. and the humor, the humor just made it creepy, you know? So this is when I called Ellen and I said, you know, maybe it's something about the conversation. Maybe this has to be captured in flight. You know, maybe we'll talk about that curriculum somehow. So she said, you know, graciously, she came along for the ride and said, sure, I'll, I'll participate in that. And it turns out that what we discovered is in order to make this accessible, we had to really embrace the adventure. And as soon as we discovered that, you know, I thought to myself after one of our conversations that didn't end up making the final cut, we sort of tried several iterations of the recording process before we came up with something that worked. And the thing that gelled it all together was I went home that day and I said, you know, what's the thing that makes me want to go on an adventure? You know, and I remember back when I was a kid, I had an illustrated version of Peter Pan. And the frontispiece okay. was was an illustration of Never Neverland, you know, the island. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and it had the Pirate's Cove and it had like skulls on it mm-hmm. and little X's and stuff. And all I wanted to do was look at that when I was reading. I'd go back and look at it and imagine that I was Where there. am I on there? Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can really be there. And I said, well, if that's what engaged my adventure, then maybe we should have a map to this journey. And that's when I went home and I drew that aisle of sleep apnea map, which I sort of giggle at because I love dad jokes. And even that's a dad joke. I love sleep apnea. (laughs) It sort of engages you in a different lens, you know? And and as soon as I drew out the geography of how this decision-making should happen, you know, that you have to talk about certain things up front before you can go here, before you Mm -hmm. can even talk about treatments, then it all sort of made sense. And then suddenly we've got a whole new, creation on our hands if we can embrace the zany then you know this this sort of um guilty habit that i have of cartooning this is sort of my answer to my own adhd tendencies is during lectures to pay attention i'll just draw pictures you know and sometimes i'll capture something in the lecture i've been doing that my whole life and my teachers you know in grade school and middle school they were ripping my homework up for this so i've always (laughs) sort of had this guilty shame of the cartooning habit and lo and behold, it's also an extremely disarming art form. 
So we can take really complex subjects that might feel threatening to talk about and we put them in a cartoon and then all of a sudden we can get our hands around it and and feel like we can talk about that problem. And interestingly, it's the cartooning of this that opened up a lot of opportunities to talk about difficult subjects, um, both in, in the management of sleep apnea, but also for the entire specialty. You know, how we communicate with other professionals, the cartooning has come mm-hmm. in handy in, in talking about those types of problems, too. And I'll tell you, it helps, too, as you're going through the book and you digest it, and you're, you're entering this, this bay of narrative when they see the map, you'll understand it. Um, and the book opens with this this cartoon and this, this lead character is going to guide us through this and he appears. And you have these little stopping points throughout the way, which I encourage parents as you get the book, take a minute take the stopping point. Don't blow by that cartoon. Um, because I will admit the first one, I kind of went, Oh, that's cute. And I kept going. And I was a few pages away and thought, wait, didn't he? And I went back to the cartoon. There's a reason they're there. They're not just fillers. He was introducing and it. It's this, this segue, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, we're about to talk about something kind of difficult and here we are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we're going through, um, I'm, I'm glad you far, noticed that, Rebecca, I, you know, because the, the cartoons were definitely part of the journey for me and the way they're placed in the book, they're meant to be a little mental nap from yeah. the reading. And it's actually there. I hide stuff in them. You know, I, I tend you to sort of put, put, put little Easter eggs in there to find. I, was, I started looking at the pictures, not just the words. I'm looking for things yeah. now in the, yeah. in the designs. You, and yeah. so I'd encourage you, if, if you want to sort of have some fun, get a magnifying glass and kind of see what's in there. Because I build things in kind of for fun, but there's layers yeah. within layers. And I think that's part of the point here is that the more you look, the more you yeah. might find. And um, and so, yes, the cartoons are meant to be lingered over um, and it gives you more food for thought as you go through it. It does. And I'll encourage parents. I will put a link uh, in our show notes to the podcast. So it. And even if you don't do the whole series at once, do that first episode before you dig in, because you really, the two of you, you set it up so beautifully. And um, I I just, I just, I just really encourage that. So I will put that there. I'm going to tell people to do this. Um, (laughs) Well, the the first five episodes of our podcast, um, it's the first season. It's only five episodes long, but it was basically a, a contrivance to, um, get across what I call that curriculum. I, I wanted to teach mm-hmm. the curriculum that would help people unpack complexity. So basically it's it's yeah. a vehicle to teach people about two five-point mnemonics. They're, they're, mm-hmm. un, they're complexity sense-making tools within this very complex problem. And we can probably get to those yep. in this conversation. Yeah, we're going to touch on those. Yeah, sure, absolutely. sure, sure. But that's what the whole first season is about, is if you listen to all five episodes, it'll give you a working knowledge of what those two complexity tools are. And, uh, and it'll help you communicate with your provider, no matter what silo of thought they're in. Right, right. And you'll also get introduced to Robert, who to me is yes. a great, it's not so much, not so much as it applies to us for kids, but even as a parent that's going into this thinking, the dental provider, the pediatrician, the sleep provider, they just want money. My kid's fine. Yeah. No, yeah. get to know Robert and you'll understand. It's, it's a very different perspective. So it does even apply to parents. So I really encourage mm-hmm. that. Um, okay. So we kind of have an understanding for how the book came to be, um, which again, it is, it is absolutely magnificent. Um, 
and we'll dig a little bit more into, I was just going to ask point blank, you know, how can it benefit parents? But instead I want to approach that differently because I think they'll know as we go through this conversation. So let's just start with what is diagnosis based medicine? And I think we all kind of know what it is, but what's wrong with this approach? Yeah. Um, so this is kind of one of the things that's hard to talk about because um, it's it's a pervasive way of the way our medical culture works. But um, what we're dealing with these days is is we have a, a compensation driven system. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you have a diagnosis code that allows payment for something, it's going to speed you along a pathway that will get you towards a treatment that's covered. That's just the way that mm -hmm. works. You know, you get diagnosed with sleep apnea and you're seeing a medical provider and what's covered by their insurance is going to be probably either uh, positive airway pressure therapy or a, a, a standard mandibular advancement type oral appliance device. That's what the insurance coverage will be for. And this is all in flux too. So a lot of this depends on your carrier and, and, and there are many rules involved. But the bottom line is what insurance pays for is probably what you're going to get. And then um, what follows from there is usually kind of a, a, a label-based approach. You come in specifically to follow up for your sleep apnea. And then the questioning is, are you using your machine? And it becomes very treatment-based. And, and it's just yeah. human, it's human nature, especially with the fact that most of our providers are operating on a schedule where they're seeing patients every 15 minutes. And that might be mandated mm. by their employer. You know, so right. this, this is something that it's very hard to get your hands around and, and discussing it actually tends to make people feel defensive because they're doing the best they can, you know, but the system mm -hmm. tends to drive people towards this label-based approach. And, you know, when you have a very simple version of this problem, then, you know, it works okay. And, you know, but then we turn around and we, we keep shaking our heads and wondering in the adult population, why is the long-term CPAP adherence rate 50 to 70%? And, and the mm -hmm. answer is, it's hard to answer that question because those people leave and then you can't observe them anymore once they've left. And in my mm. experience, one of the reasons that people leave is that they feel disempowered. You know, they feel like they have no agency. They feel like this label-based system ignores their humanity. And, and this is where we come back around to the empowerment curriculum, something that recognizes the individual's narrative. Uh, their reason okay. for being there and helps them understand, you know, why we're going to do something about this. All of this is very standard education. There's nothing in this textbook or in, I won't even call it a textbook, nothing in the beautiful blue book that, <laughs> you know, a standard medical provider would disagree with. You know, this is why I, it's been so important to me that uh, the blue book has been sort of looked at and cherished by individuals from different silos of thought you know, Western medical, my former mentor, Dr. Andy Chesson, who is a past president of the AASM, um, gave me a favorable review for the book. Uh, Dr. Keith Thornton, who's a pioneer in sort of uh, uh, the airway dentistry world with the mandibular advancement devices. He's the inventor of the TAP positioner, uh, read the book and loved mm -hmm. it. You know, pioneers in the more uh, outlawed uh, airway-centered dentistry movement, which are outside Western medical, um, have, have read the book and enjoyed it. So the point is that the language unifies people and patients can sort of feel like it can unify their environment. One of the, the yeah. hardest things I've learned to talk about is that when people fall outside the silo, let, let's think about maybe that 30 to 50% of people that just fall out of CPAP, 
You know, when they fall out of that Western medical silo, maybe it's because they felt it was pushed at them inappropriately. Maybe they had an experience Mm -hmm. like my character, Robert, who they were distrustful. So now they're outside the silo. How do they know what to do? How do they know who to ask? You know, and so this book is designed as a guidebook to help people deconstruct this in a way that um, their providers can uh, understand and embrace no matter what silo their their provider happens to be in. You know, it organizes the thinking and the deconstruction of these very complex problems. Right. And gives them the tools, by the way, especially as parents, to where you're not in a silo anymore. That's the other thing I'm starting to figure out. When you have, when you're empowered to when you're empowered with the words and the tools to have these conversations with your provider, you're empowered to help with your journey. So you're going to work through this map together. So you get to bring in and have a more holistic opportunity for treatment for your child. So it's, you're not totally siloed. And I Mm -hmm. think that's a very important um, thing to bring up. So another thing you talk about, uh, and I believe you talk about in the podcast as well as a sleep awake complaint um, yeah, which is interesting. That was one of those things that really resonated to me, and I had to go back and look at the cartoon a little bit too. So, because they didn't really understand it at first, and uh, you actually do talk about it in the podcast. I remember now. So, well, first of all, what is this? Because the term it wasn't what I thought it was actually going to be. And, and as a physician, what should you be listening for? What do you listen for? Yeah. So this is an attempt to bring it all back and help the patient capture and characterize their own narrative with respect to the sleep-wake experience. So let's just sort of break it down. You know, when people come to the doctor, maybe let's say Mm -hmm. you, you, you show up in a sleep doctor's office, a provider who, Mm -hmm. who is adjacent to sleep. How do you talk about why you're there? You know, and the answer is there's multiple dimensions. And so we as providers can help people break it down. I usually like to start with a very blanket question to get people oriented. So I'll say, you know, let's think about your sleep and let's think about how you feel during the day relative to your sleep. And let's think about how satisfying that is, you know, and just I'll ask you a blank question. Are you satisfied with your sleep-wake experience? I mean, you know, if people say, well, yeah. You know, sometimes they say, yeah, defensively up front because, you know, they're thinking you're trying yeah. to sell them something. And this is right. what happened with, with the, the with character who inspired Robert. Mm-hmm. You know, this man was defensive and he says, you know, there's nothing wrong with my sleep because from his perspective, the chain of events went from unrelated complaints you know, so he he came in and it was a it was a standard screening type of um, primary care visit that disclosed an irregular heartbeat and frequent trips to the bathroom during sleep. So he gets sent to two different specialists, a urologist and a cardiologist. OK, fair enough. But both of them know that there's a relationship between the complaint that they're seeing the patient for. Cardiologist was AFib. The urologist was frequent nighttime urination. Both of them know there's a connection between those problems and sleep apnea, you know? So they're like just checking the boxes and sending him to the sleep doc. And meanwhile, he's never complained about his sleep or his breathing once Mm -hmm. to a provider. So he didn't understand. Yeah. So he's feeling manhandled and he's feeling roughed up and he's feeling Mm -hmm. pushed into this machine. That's going to take money out of his pocket. So by the time he gets to the sleep doc, he's defensive. And he's, he's like, there's nothing wrong with my sleep. And the question that sort of broke it open for the man who inspired Robert was, 
I said, okay, so that means that you fall asleep easily at bedtime, you sleep well through the night and deeply, and you wake up feeling refreshed and restored, and you're not tired or sleepy during the daytime. And he goes, well, no, that's not true at all. (laughs) And then both of us kind of shared a laugh, you know, it's like, okay, so I said, so maybe it's not quite as satisfying as you like. He says, well, that's true. Those things are, but, and then I said, okay, let's talk about those things. Let's characterize, you know, what this is. So if you can rate your satisfaction on a scale of one to 10, let's say 10 out of 10 is perfect. It would be everything that sleep should be deep, restorative. You know, I feel great and energetic during the daytime versus one out of 10 would be, I can't imagine this could be worse. Like this is as bad as it could be in this or any other universe. Get them to put a number to it. And then all of a sudden you start to get people engaging because they're like, oh, okay, all these things might matter. Okay, well, I guess on a scale of one to 10, I'd put it at about a six. You know, that's a failing grade. This is somebody who's like feeling something at this point. So now my ears are pricked up. You know, if somebody says, well, you know, it's my... When they kind of stammer, usually it's something under their control. You know, it's like they know they drank too much caffeine. They know they're having too much alcohol or something. But when people are kind of serious about it, they're like, okay, someone's listening. I'll give myself a five. Like that's a failing grade. So now we got to explore that five. Okay. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking of specifically when you deducted 50% of your total grade? You gave yourself an F, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then they'll say, well, you know, it's hard often to get to sleep. Um, well, my partner doesn't like it because I make noise and I snore. So he often leaves, you know, and I wake up a lot and probably three or four times I wake up and I'm like wondering if I'm going to get back to sleep. And then during the day, I'm kind of scatterbrained and I, I fall asleep at my noontime meeting. Okay. Yeah. Now we've got now we're some somewhere. narrative. Yeah. Now we've yeah. got some narrative. Okay, so I now I understand what's going on. And, you know, this person has five out of 10 sleep satisfaction due to frequent inability getting to sleep on the front end. This the, the sensation of light stage, poor quality sleep, easily awakened, prolonged nocturnal awakenings. You know, how many trips to the bathroom for Robert? It was two to three, you know, and then we get some sense of daytime neuro, neurocognitive impairment, you know, falling asleep at the at the noon meeting. And we can characterize that, you know, losing my yeah. keys, not paying attention, feeling depressed and kind of irritable. All of these are part of the spectrum. So now we've got some meat on this. Okay. Now we've got a set of sleep wake complaints. This can now guide us to go. And when we're going to have our discussion for our first um, deconstruction tool, which I call the five reasons to treat sleep apnea. Now the patient can have that discussion with knowledge. Okay. Because mm-hmm. the five reasons to treat, I might as well introduce them. Everybody yeah, with sleep it. apnea, the, the label at this point, encompasses such a spectrum of pathology that the label sleep apnea is almost meaningless these days because it can encompass such a broad spectrum of what this means. So, you know, normally a diagnostic label that has an ICD-10 code, you think, well, there should be a recommended treatment course. Like, you know, if you have Uh a, a an E. coli UTI, urinary tract infection, there is a standard set of antibiotics that you should take. You know, it's like, boom, boom, you know what you're supposed to do. Right. And sleep apnea, because it's so complex, it it, it involves uh, an overlap between obstructive sleep apnea pathology, which is a collapse or a narrowing of the upper airway during attempts to breathe. And it overlaps with something called central sleep apnea 
which is a completely different um, problem, but it's an oscillation mm-hmm. of effort to breathe that can be disruptive to the sleep-wake experience. And there's many moving parts with that too. You know, so the many moving parts of obstructive sleep apnea, we all know about sort of being heavy and having a collapsible upper airway. That's the narrative for, you know, the folks that need CPAP. But there's a whole different phenotype that's emerging that involves kind of deficiencies of what's called the craniofacial respiratory complex, the Mm -hmm. bony constituents of the face. You know, this is where our kids that we're talking about are there in this group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the concept of introducing I call it many moving parts. I think that's the second episode in our first season. The concept of introducing there are many moving parts to this problem that is encompassed under the label sleep apnea, and it's complex. And there are different moving parts that are relevant for different people in different combinations. And so what follows from that logically is once you engage that engineering mindset, then you can fully appreciate the fact that there is no one size fits all solution. And there shouldn't be. Right. And presenting it that way alienates a substantial portion of the the people who have this label or will end up getting this label. So the five reasons to treat discussion helps to unpack, you know, should we do something about this for you and why? And I'll just enumerate them. There are five reasons to treat sleep apnea and there always will be five reasons to treat different ones are relevant for different people but that's why i built the monument so on the on the aisle of sleep apnea there's this big roman columned monument yeah. with big stairs yeah. and that's designed to there sort of um, uh, yeah i don't know if it, there it is it's, it's not, like it's right there yeah yeah your blur is taking it yeah. out of the picture but it's in yeah, the middle yeah. of the island it's, it's there before, you ha- you have to go there before you cross over into treated territory yeah. because that's where you break it down and the five reasons to treat are risk snoring, sleep, wake, and comorbidities. Okay, so let's just go through that. Risk is the first step to talk about. And that's, I put it first because it's the hardest one. It's really a nuanced discussion. And um, once again, the cartoons, well, it's, it's nuanced because not all sleep apnea is created equal, right? We've got this idea that there's a metric of severity, right? Called the apnea hypopnea index. So the AHI is kind of a standard metric that's reported, you know, typically an AHI of five events per hour or more. Um, It it depicts a a diagnosis of sleep apnea. That's kind of convention and and part of the culture, uh, especially on the sort of Western medical side. It's like the moderate, the severe. And these labels come up based on what that number is, mild, moderate, severe. And those labels can take on a life of their own, too. Now, Mm -hmm. the problem here is that everything we know about mortality risk with sleep apnea was really... um, We appreciate this knowledge based on very good prospective um, observational uh, population-based cohorts, okay, where we take a large population of people, you measure their baseline metrics at the beginning, and then you follow that whole population forward in time, okay? It's a powerful um, clinical epidemiology tool to uh, evaluate harm. Okay. And that's an important consideration. So, so some of the major cohorts in this country have been the Wisconsin sleep cohort and the sleep heart health study. Okay. These both found a, um, a definite signal for AHI influencing long-term mortality, particularly 
um, AHI when defined by, and I'm going to put this out there, the way you define the hypopnea matters. So a hypopnea is an event where the airflow drops for several breaths in a row, presumably because the airway is constricted, and then it recovers. Mm -hmm. And because of that event, something physiologic happens. So the classic definition for a hypopnea is a 4% drop in oxygen saturations as a result of that flow limitation event. Okay. And that's the way sleep heart health study and Wisconsin sleep cohort define their hypopneas. So when we're talking about AHI, it's important to know that the mortality data that we all think about was based on the AHI that used the 4% desaturation criterion. Okay. But what these studies definitively showed was that if the AHI was greater than 30, 30 events per hour, then there was a definite impact on long-term mortality. People died younger. And the signal is that they died younger, all cause mortality, but also um, cardiovascular mortality, which includes strokes and interestingly, cancer mortality. Okay. So there's something, there is something uniquely stressful about repetitive attempts to breathe against a closed or a semi-closed airway causing oxygen desaturations. That is bad okay. news for long-term mortality yeah. when it happens, okay? But now let's sort of throw in a little complexity now, okay? Let's throw in some complexity that um, an AHI greater than five may have some increase in mortality. It just didn't reach statistical right. significance. You know, it's hard to prove okay. that it's due to one thing, okay? Um, right. So we're starting to get signal above an AHI greater than five. So there's okay. now, uh, when we go back and, and sort of reverse look at that and say, well, you know, what if the 4% AHI is less than five? You'll get a group of people that say, you don't have sleep apnea, you know, look at the, so right. the mortality data and they're pointing at these wonderful studies. But sure. The problem is this is such a multidimensional disease. There are uh, obstructive type flow limitation events that don't cause the oxygen to drop. Okay, this is more often the phenotype in younger people who have healthy lungs, you know. Uh-huh. So these types of events, they can be scored. Okay, those are scored as respiratory effort related arousals in a sleep lab. Uh-huh. And uh, and they can be disruptive to sleep. Turns out that part of the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea is that if you're having symptoms, like, you know, let's say you've got a bunch of sleep-wake complaints. You've got, you're dissatisfied, you're waking up a lot, you're snoring, and you've got, you know, 15 respiratory effort-related arousals or RERAs per hour, but no apnea mm-hmm. and no hypopnea. You know, according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, you would still have a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea in that setting because the obstructive okay. event, event rate is greater than five per hour. They include RERAs in that definition. Now, here's the problem, though. The the way our standards are written, RERAs are an optional... Um, uh, event to score for labs to be accredited. You don't have to, in other words, RERAs are okay. kind of tru- troublesome, you know, and traditionally um, it, it has been a toss up whether some insurance companies will cover RERA predominant obstructive sleep apnea. So again, we get this sort of treatment pathway that um, mm-hmm. blocks the thinking about this problem. If if you can't right. get treatment for it, then it's not really a problem and there's no so mortality risk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right. go on, you're not my problem. So I've got 15 minutes, you know, I can't get you mm-hmm. on CPAP anyway. 
Um, so th this is kind of the, the boots on the ground experience. And, and when patients get that signal, they, they get confused because they're, they're led to believe the study was normal. And, and that's right. not always the case. So, so here we have complexity again. So going back, let's say this person did get the diagnosis of, of obstructive sleep apnea because they have 15 okay. liras per hour, no apneas, no hypopneas. What do we say about risk? Well, this is where we can go back and say, well, yes, you qualify for the label sleep apnea based on these criteria. But what we know about this flavor of sleep apnea is that it doesn't seem to have an impact on long-term mortality based on these population studies. Okay. So it's, it's a, okay. it's a subtlety that is often lost, especially let's, let's say it's a lab that is being generous with their scoring. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has changed the definition of hypopnea. So now a lab can use an arousal from sleep as the um, physiologic um, endpoint that allows scoring of a hypopnea, as long as there is that requisite 30% reduction in airflow on the airflow trace. Mm -hmm. okay. So now we can see how someone might get an AHI of 15, 20, mm -hmm. 30, when their 4% AHI would have been- Wouldn't have registered. Yeah. Two. Okay. Yeah. Holy smokes. Now my brain is blown because now we're using the same three letter initials, you know, AHI to mean very different things about mortality risk. Okay. Sure. So again, going back to that first step, how do we talk about risk? How do we present this to our patients? Do we use a defensive stance and say, well, you have severe sleep apnea because your AHI is 31 and severe sleep apnea. We have to treat this with CPAP because there's a stroke risk. And now we can see how the patient might start to feel coerced, especially yep. if they find out later that, that that AHI was generated using the arousal criterion instead of the 4% criterion, right? So it, it would have no relationship to the AHI numbers that were reported by those important population-based studies, okay? So hence, right. labels and numbers can be misleading. What we need to do is unpack yep. these for people mm -hmm. and, you know, Again, the whole project is about the fact that unpacking it requires a, 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 an understanding of the jargon, and right. that can be that can be scary. You know, jargon is scary right. for people, especially if they but don't have. That's what the Bay of Narrative is for. That's what the that's Bay, what the bay is of for. Narrative is for. Yeah. yeah, come to the Bay. Have 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 a um uh, a, a, a fruit cocktail. I would say a, a nice fruit drink as we walk drinking out of a coconut, you know, with a little umbrella is the kind of state of mind you should be in. You are listening to airway first with today's guests, Dr. Dave McCarty. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to fix before six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. The CAF website offers tons of great resources for both parents and medical professionals. In our Parents Portal and Clinician Corner, you can find educational and informational content, including videos, blogs, our recommended reading list, comprehensive medical research, podcasts, events, parent support, and educational opportunities. Parents are also encouraged to join the Airway Huddle, our Facebook support group, which was created for parents of children with airway and sleep-related issues. 
You can access the Airway Huddle support group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Airway Huddle. Are you a medical professional or parent that's interested in being a guest on a show? Then shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now let's jump back into my interview with today's guest, Dr. Dave McCarty. Right. Okay, so we have risk. We know that's one. Okay, so you saw how long I rambled on about that. That's Um, right. There's a lot of jargon about risk. And as a result, most most providers don't do it and they can't do it. Yeah. I'll I'll introduce another flavor to this. So we, um, to risk before we move on the, uh, the discussion about risk again is based on those population based cohorts, right? Those Mm -hmm. were both studies that were done on middle-aged people, um, younger middle-aged people to begin with generally who were free of baseline cardiovascular disease generally at baseline and who lived at sea level. Okay. Three factors that I want to consider when now we're talking about another complexity of sleep apnea, which is called central sleep apnea. Okay. So central sleep apnea, again, is this oscillation of respiratory effort that happens mm-hmm. as a result of many factors. Okay. And the, some of the risk factors for the development of more central apnea physiology events on your study are aging, So just being older and getting older means that your circulation time and cardiac output tends to drop as a factor of, you know, aging related cardiac disease and Mm -hmm. um, circulation time, how long it takes for your blood to get around the whole circuit around the block. When that's prolonged, Mm -hmm. it tends to lead to unstable respiratory control. Okay. So the older that you get, the more cardiovascular disease you mount up and the higher elevation you live at. All of these are factors that influence how much central apnea physiology is going to emerge. Now, here's the here's the rub. Central hypopneas are a thing. Mm-hmm. This is where it's not an absolute pause in effort. It's a reduced okay. amplitude and often a reduced rate of breathing that happens that creates an airflow limitation that causes yeah. an oxygen. Okay. It is considered optional. Because it's hard to tell the difference between they're often these these findings are mixed. So there can be features of obstruction and features of central apnea physiology happening simultaneously, one superimposed upon the mm-hmm. other. But the, the basic teaching point is the more risk factors you have for central apnea physiology, the more likely it is that your AHI number is going to be um, weighted towards central apnea physiology events. Okay, now keep in okay. mind that um, a true central apnea, you can consider it a pause in breathing that follows a heavy sigh. Okay. The heavy sigh mm-hmm. is what happens during the recovery relative arousal phase. And then what happens okay. is just pause. And it's an instability between mm-hmm. those heavy sigh and pause type of states. And that, you know, the, the, the pause can be relative. It can just be reduced effort too. Now that type of an instability is not the same 
as struggling to breathe against a closed or semi-closed airway. Okay, it doesn't produce the same type of physiology. And to date, we don't have any reliable data that shows that pure central sleep apnea represents a long-term mortality risk the same way obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. Gotcha. So now now that we've got that them separated in our minds, that you know, we can think about them kind of separately. What happens when, you know, someone has maybe mildish obstructive sleep apnea and then they start to get more instability with the respiratory effort as they get older. And now they've got Mm -hmm. kind of a mixed phenotype and their number is kind of high. Is this the same problem as Wisconsin sleep cohort, AHI 30 showing a mortality rate, you know, uh, a survival risk, a rate of 57% at 18 years. That's what that study showed when the AHI was over 30, as opposed to people with AHI less than five, who had basically a 98% survival rate at 18 years, Wisconsin sleep cohort showed that 57% of that cohort AHI greater than 30 was still alive at 18 years. That's a huge problem. Okay, but what what if it's a a 80 year old woman with atrial fibrillation who lives in the mountains, who has a primarily central apnea phenotype, central hypopnea phenotype, and she's going to get a number AHI uh, 35. Is that the same problem anymore? And I'm and the right. answer is it's not. Okay? No, yeah. The, you know the solution to her problem may be why don't you move to sea level and um and see what happens um when you retest and maybe avoid back sleeping and sleep with your mouth closed, you know, to handle whatever the obstructive component might have been. So there, there's the concept of many moving parts is relevant to all mm-hmm. of this risk discussion too. You know. Because yeah. the discussion of risk requires that we understand the difference between central apnea physiology and obstructive, uh, obstructive sleep apnea pathology. And those two things can be intermingled with each other, you know? So right. um, I think I'm done talking about risk. Uh, okay. The second, the second lot, step, the, the second step yeah. of the monument is snoring. Oh, and by the way, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the little adventure, there's the uh, five reasons monument and then coffee mm-hmm. hut. Right. It's five reasons to treat monument and coffee hut. And I did that on purpose. It was kind of a spur of the moment decision, but I realized I didn't want it to be a scary, big monumental place that, you know, you had to regard with dignity. You had to go and recognize it. It's a monument, but then the place you need to go is the coffee hut. Because what you need yeah. is about, you know, as many hours as you need to sit, it needs to be to a time, yep. imp- yeah. time patient place, you know, where you're not rushed. Yep. And so for me, the image that came to my mind was uh, was one of those old converted railroad cars that's now a diner. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. Open all night, yeah. you can stay as long as yeah. you want. Time doesn't exist. The waitress right. is real nice, and you eat pie and drink coffee. So that was the yep. the liminal space that I felt was appropriate. That was the opposite of the usual clinical encounter of you know you got fifteen minutes. Here's what sleep apnea is with this trifold handout. Boop 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 and, and out. Yep. You know, and to most people, unless it's very straightforward for them, they find that dissatisfying, and they they know there's something more to it. And if their case turns sure. out to be more complex, then they end up looking back on that discussion with a little bit of distrust. And I think that's a problem that we should be talking about, you know? So and I think, move- and I, I want to, I, I want to interject here before we move on to snoring too. That's another thing that you're going to learn throughout this book as you go on this journey. And I want parents to really, really hear this message. We talk about it all the time. 
advocating for your child is so huge. That's part of go the in, empowerment project for sure. Exactly. I mean, yes. I mean, okay. Y'all went to med school. Y'all are the experts. Not denying that, but to your point, we're 15 minutes, we're in and out. You're going to miss things. So if your gut, if your instinct, if something is wrong, something was messed, something was not addressed, say it, bring it up, go to a second Mm -hmm. opinion, but you keep advocating until you feel like, okay, I'm comfortable. We're on the same page. Let's move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And and the language of the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project is designed around self-advocacy, but it's designed also because this is a this is a difficult project or, or difficult process for most providers. Providers who are feeling time impoverished are feeling the the rush of that. And so there's a, a natural tendency sure. towards being very um, straight and very direct with one's uh, instructions. And so you can fall into this um, systematized way that um, you feel there's no other way to do it, you know, because you've got to get right. through this, this this conversation and they have to be aware of the risks and you can't let that s- remain unsaid, you know, so it, it's a very difficult yeah. place for the providers to be as well. And this is the point of the friendliness exactly. of the book, so, you know, so the subtext is the book is called a handbook for patients and the people who care about them. Those people who care it's about them everyone. are their providers. You know, so if we yeah. can share the language, um, patients out there, this would be a beautiful gift for your sleep doc or your primary mm. care provider, because it is fun to read. They can put it in their waiting room. People like to sort of pick it up and look at it and it helps engage the conversation. So if you can yeah. go in and your provider understands, you know, the whole five reasons to treat paradigm and you can have that discussion, then things flow a lot more smoothly, you know? So, right. Um, Right. With, I don't want to keep people in suspense. Second reason to nope. treat snoring. Yep. Snoring. Okay. Yeah. So I, I put that as its own distinct reason because it's a spectrum. Um, some people are unaware if they snore, but they might still do it. And there are ways to check mm-hmm. on that so that you can use an app to sort of monitor and, and play it back and see some right. people. And go listen can, to your kids at night. Go listen. Yeah. And you go, can and record them once. too. Yeah. Not just yeah. once. Absolutely. A couple of times. M- more yeah. data is more better, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, there are people who have rip roaring, real life threatening sleep apnea who do not make a sound, you know, silent sleep apnea is a thing. Mm. And so for people who say, well, I can't have sleep apnea because I don't snore. That's an important consideration. You know, it doesn't represent a reason to treat for you <laughs> if you don't snore, but right. you know, you may still need to treat this for the other four reasons. Might still That's, be there. That's enlightening for people. Sometimes people don't have a bed partner. And so they may not know if they snore, but they they may have what I call snoring aftermath symptoms. I would say you have the signs. Yeah. So nasal congestion or irritability in the back of the throat, foreign body sensation, wake up, dry mouth, all this yucky crud back there. That might be snoring aftermath. So, you know, if you're getting that and you're like, well, I don't know, again, we can use technology to try to characterize what this burden of snoring is for you. Um, When I talk about snoring, I want to know what the social burden is. I want to know how this impacts people's decisions to go camping or go places with people. I want to know whether it's impacted sleeping arrangements at home, you know, so you can get a real sense for what this is doing. Because the other side of this is that snoring is not necessarily benign. Snoring is vibrational trauma, okay, which creates an inflammatory response. So snoring can be part of the pathogenesis of 
you know, sinusitis, for example, it's, it's a mucosal irritant due to vibrational trauma. And there are also some lines of data that suggest that the burden of snoring, okay, meaning the intensity and the duration at night itself can be an independent risk factor for getting atherosclerotic plaque buildup in the carotids, okay, just due mm. to proximity, all this right right yeah it can be pretty high intensity stuff and it just damages the lining of the arteries okay so a a, a frank discussion about the impact of snoring on you you know my patient Mm -hmm. that's what that step is all about really getting your hands around how much this matters okay so at the end of the day is snoring a reason to treat or not and the patient can say yes or no third reasons to treat is just sleep. You know, I, I made these one word reasons to make it easier to remember, but the sleep experience. So this is where we go back and we flesh out again, those sleep wake complaints that we talk to our patients about. How is the nocturnal experience? Is it easy to go to sleep? Is it easy to remain asleep? Do you toss and turn? Are you easily awakened? Do you awaken in the morning with any physical discomforts? You know, a lot of sleep apnea patients will have headaches in the morning. And they're just like, oh, I'm a headachey person. And they don't sort of think about it. Nocturnal reflux, yeah. you know, acid reflux is mm-hmm. always a, a problem with people with sleep apnea. Not always, but you know what I mean. When you're trying to yeah, suck yeah, yeah. And, you're, and you're trying to sort of breathe against a semi-closed airway, you're creating a suction for the abdominal contents to come up. So mm-hmm. a lot of people will be given the label of heartburn they'll be you know advised to take some sort of antacid medication to relieve mm-hmm. the symptoms mm-hmm. and it's never fully investigated as being related to you know something that's happening with their breathing at night you know right. same thing is true with frequent trips to the bathroom nocturia is what that's called you know nocturia. normally the, the physiology during sleep is we're we're kind of designed to to put a little minimization of how much urine we're producing while we're sleeping. That's just normal mm-hmm. physiology. That way we can sleep through the night. But when people have sleep apnea, it changes the physiology of how fluids are are sensed. And it can actually increase the pressures in um, the right-sided elevated chambers of the heart, the right atrium, as a result yep. of the vasoconstriction that happens in the pulmonary bed during these um, uh, breathing events. Okay. And what that does basically is it tells the heart uh, an erroneous signal of fluid overload and the heart then sends a signal to the kidneys to make more urine. Okay. So a lot of times the frequent bacteria is is a sign that, that the sleep apnea is putting a strain on the heart and it's just connecting those dots can be hard. If you went to, um, you know, a, a more label-based physician and said, I have frequent nocturia, they may say, oh, well, it's your prostate. Let's put you on a medicine for that. And once that mm-hmm. label gets affixed, it's hard to think about it any it's other It's hard way. to shake it. And you in know, children, now, it's probably going to present differently, correct? Yeah, in children, you might- They're children, not going to get up. They're just going to bed wet. That's right. Yeah, a nocturnal yeah. enuresis can be part of the part of this picture for ki- for children for the same reasons, you know. And, and enuresis is a um, is a complex subject, but it has to do with with the sleep disruptive aspects as well as the physiology of of uh, of uh, of bladder control. Um, so uh, that's the sleep experience. Again, worth unwinding okay. for the patient. Worth going back to that original discussion at the Bay of Narrative. You know, how do you perceive your sleep experience? What what's wrong? Why isn't it a ten? Um, fourth reason to treat the wake experience. Okay, so okay. this is where we unwind 
the, the patient's perception of quality of their daytime um, neurobehavioral context in, in their waking day. Do they feel like they can uh, stay awake effortlessly, you know, or do they have to stand up at meetings? You know, do they fall asleep mm-hmm. behind the wheel? These are the more dramatic presentations. You know, yeah. there's the, the very commonly used Epworth sleepiness scale, which is a numeric yeah. score for how likely you are to doze off during periods of inactivity during during uh, wakefulness. That's helpful. You know, if it's elevated, anything over uh, 10 is 10 and higher is typically considered too much daytime sleepiness on that scale. But, um, okay. you know, it shouldn't be used to sort of turn people away from care. A normal Epworth score certainly doesn't mean you're, you don't have any daytime neurobehavioral impairment. It just means you're not mm-hmm. manifesting as inappropriate dozing episodes. So you okay. know, a sleep disruption and sleep deprivation, meaning you're not getting enough hours or the, the hours that you're getting are so disrupted that you can't get all of that physiologic sleep pressure out of your head. That can produce symptoms that are really nonspecific attention deficit, you know, mm-hmm. inability to control one's emotions in kids is often what we see. Yeah. Um, they often become um, hyperactive rather than, you know, dozy, um, in adults, adults, it can be uh, a different spectrum altogether due to the chronicity of it. So, you know, how this affects people, uh, can go different ways. Sometimes the chronicity of this, um, fight or flight stimulation that happens at night can lead to sort of an, a chronic overactivity of all of that fight or flight apparatus. So people end up feeling anxious, twitchy. Um, They Mm -hmm. suffer from insomnia more than Mm. uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. They may present with stress-related syndromes like migraine headaches or um, TMJ dysfunction, you know, problems with their their jaw joints. Uh, Grinding can be part of that. So, you know, it can be kind of not on the radar screen for what we usually think sleep apnea, which is the classic presentation, of course, the Pickwickian yeah. syndrome of the heavy person who snores and is falling asleep at the lunch table. That's not mm-hmm. the way it always is. That's not right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, many moving parts. So um, helping to deconstruct the wake experience for people allows them to explore some of these things that may have been labeled something else, anxiety disorder okay. or uh, ADHD, D or, you know, something like that. Um, The last reason to treat is going to be consideration of comorbidities, comorbidities. That's a mouthful, but it basically refers to the also ran diagnoses. These other elements on your problem list that are vulnerable to untreated sleep apnea. And this is really a meant to be a discussion between provider and patient. It's a it's big one. To, yeah. It's meant to be an inventory. You know, how are you doing overall? Yeah. What are we treating you for? You know, um, what are you seeing providers for or therapists for? Could this be related? And, and drawing attention to the fact that the reflux and the migraine headaches and the teeth grinding and the frequent nocturia all could be part of this syndrome helps people say, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Now I see what we're taking aim at, because the truth is for many of these other problems, it's really hard to make them better. You can manage them maybe, but it's hard to make them better if you don't address the underlying sleep disordered breathing, because it's that. And this is where you talk about in in one of the the first two episodes about the boil the frog thing, because they could be here 
and we're just going through life. We've adapted. We're just moving through it. But all this damage is being done. And you, and you, no one has yet connected the dots. So this is a real opportunity yeah. for pro- providers to help patients connect their dots. And the five reasons to treat it, it always helps shed clarity for folks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the, the fictional character, Robert, in our podcast was based on a real life event um, that actually mm-hmm. caused me to come up with this discussion. Um, and uh, I, it, it took a very hostile patient who was very distressful over the medical system with a very significant mm-hmm. and complex problem and allowed him to find his way through it. And he became one of my best patients, best, but, you know, he did well on his therapy, but it was yeah. a complex journey that he never would have undertaken if he didn't understand it. And that was the important right. part of empowerment for his story. And it turns out that he he started the discussion when I said, are you satisfied with your sleep? And he said, yes, defensively. And then uh-huh. when we broke it down, we realized that he had elements in all five reasons to treat that were pretty profound. And so when he came away from that discussion, he was like, I get it now. And I get that you're not trying to sell me something that this is, this is pervasive. And I didn't even see it, you know? And so at the end of the day for Robert, the character who, the man who inspired Robert, his actual solution was a, was a complex one because he required management of several elements that were contributing to his sleep-wake experience, not just his breathing too. Um, But Mm -hmm. again, the aisle helps you get there. That's the other five point mnemonic on, which is the five finger approach. So I don't know that uh, we're going to have time to go through this one. This may be a subject for a different discussion, but the five finger approach is is something very helpful. into that yeah and i do want to dig into that but before we do that i, I just kind of want to touch on a little bit more on comorbidities because I, I as a parent that is such a scary word you know when you think about your kids right and, and we're talking about little people mm-hmm. and there's you know they, they have decades ahead of them and yes. We think, we think we're doing the right thing. You know, we brush our teeth twice a day and we floss and we're eating. Okay. You have a cookie, but we had all these other things that were healthy and, and we're active and we're controlling screen time and we're watching so many things right now. And now we're, we're, we're faced with this huge bucket of ADHD levels are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And your child has anxiety and your child has depression and you're looking around going, but I have this happy balanced house. What's going on. These are all signs and symptoms and these comorbidities that we just don't talk about with children. We can be addressing them now and it's going to improve their health span. So this conversation is so critical for us to be having with, our providers. Absolutely. And fortunately, there's a lot of headway that's being um, made in the idea of preventive and functional approaches to um, malocclusion and, and orthodontia in, mm-hmm. in children. Because this is this is where a lot of this rubber is hitting the road is in the dental office, because in many cases, yeah. it's the first professional that's going to look critically at the size and shape and function of someone's airway. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just not on the radar screen of many pediatricians to, to look at it with, with that in mind yet, you know, I I think it will be, and the more this signal is getting out there, you know, the, 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 the more we're going to be able to talk about it, but for children, especially, I I want to emphasize to parents that mouth breathing is not normal. Uh, kids should breathe mm-hmm. through their noses and they should breathe through their noses when they're sleeping. Snoring is not normal during sleep. It's not cute. Um, it's not good for them. 
and it should be evaluated. And, and you know, cognitive uh, issues like um, uh, attention deficit disorder should be looked at critically with respect to sleep because sleep sure. is the original and best performance enhancing drug, you know? So if, if we're having yeah. problems with performance, it's uh, of course I'm biased because I'm a sleep physician, but it, it is, it can be subtle. And, uh, and if there's a question about performance, we want to really look critically at, at, at the sleep, not, not just the breathing, but, you know, habits surrounding sleep and, and whether that's uh, conducive to getting a good night's sleep. So one of the great things about the empowered sleep apnea book, you know, among uh, the, the wonderful things that I think are, 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 are in there, you can learn about these fundamental sleep wake um, processes from this book. Mm-hmm. It'll it'll teach mm-hmm. you things about how to manage your circadian rhythm and about how to think about your sleep so that you can make the behavioral choices that are conducive to good sleep. It gets into that complexity because it matters. You know, understanding right. that will allow you another place to visit in your mind, in your problem solving mind, if things aren't going perfectly on whatever strategy you've got for your airway at present, you know, gives you stuff right. to work on. Right. Agreed. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. David McCarty, for sharing his medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. To hear part two of our conversation, check out podcast episode number 48. And if you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed what you heard in today's episode, leave us a review or a comment telling us about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, X, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Parents can also join us via our Facebook parent support group, The Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddle. You can find tons of great content for parents and medical professionals alike via the Parents Portal and Clinician's Corner on our website. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or Send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help to make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone. <laughs>